rather than living life at this in the speed at this warp speed that God is saying to the family unit and to all of us you know you need to sit back and just rest it's a time of resting it is a time of reflection I want you to reflect on me I want you to just kind of center your your attention upon me and one of the things that uh, Marla and I are, are seeking to do is just kind of look into uh, God's word and just kind of center on who is God how does he display himself? How has he revealed himself? And just reflect on him. And the last word is the word restoration. When you rest and you reflect, God says, I have opportunity to restore your soul. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He's the one who guides us in the paths of righteousness. And why does he guide us and direct us? So that he might restore our soul. So Father, we thank you that you are in um, the business of restoring us. Just making us rest, lie down in green pastures and just to walk beside the quiet waters, not the rushing waters, not the rapid waters, but the quiet waters that you might have opportunity to restore us and to guide us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, that, that you might direct our lives because now, maybe, Father, for the first time, we are actually listening to you. We're actually hearing the voice and the call and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Lord, I pray that for us, that during this time and when it's, life has been turned upside down and there's just... Everything is chaotic, seemingly. Lord, we thank you that the chaos does not, does not infiltrate your kingdom. But you rather can bring peace from, from heaven to earth, from heaven to our hearts, as we rest and we reflect and we enable the Holy Spirit to, to restore us from the inside out. So may we, Father, um, count our days and choose to leverage our days wisely that we have in this time frame of, of rest and reflection and restoration. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, grab your outline uh, and let's go to Genesis chapter 1. We are in this series on winning your war and we have talked about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan uh, and how that war ensued in heaven and that war came to earth. And when the war came to earth, uh, Adam and Eve lost that war in the Garden of Eden, which forever changed the, the context and the contour of the world in which we live. And uh, so Jesus came into the world as the second Adam in order to win that war. And so we as followers of Jesus Christ, we're trying to learn how we can walk in the victory of Jesus so that that can be implemented in our individual lives. So this is the, at the point of the series in which we're going to get it down on um, our level, right? So we're going to, we've given you all the kind of the theological background and, and all that's happened and transpired because everything that happens in the invisible heavenly realms is being played out here on planet earth. It's God's Satan against kingdom Satan. And there's only uh, 
two, two kingdoms here in this world, and you're in one or the other, right? And you can either, even as a follower of Christ, Galatians says, you can either walk according to the Holy Spirit or you can walk according to the flesh. So we don't want to walk according to the flesh because that's pulling hell up. We want to walk according to the Spirit, which brings heaven down into our lives. So we want to get it onto it's winning your war because you have a war, and the first war you have to fight is what is, we're going to call your identity, Right, your identity. Um, your identity simply means how you view yourself, how you see yourself. Um, how do you see God? How do you see yourselves? How do you see those two coming together? So the title of this message is Identity Theft. Because Satan understands that if, remember, whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. He understands that if he's going to um, beat you at the war, if he, he's going to beat you at the battle, he's going to do so by confusing your identity. Our culture, rather than using the word identity, we use words like self-image, self-esteem, self-love. And I've pastored and counseled people uh, over the years who have struggled with all kinds of things, everything from alcoholism to sexual perversion and pride and depression and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And one of the things that I was frustrated with as a pastor, especially early on, because I really thought I could help people every time they came in my office, we're going to go out, you know, and they're, oh, it's a new lease on life. I discovered that they just kept themselves locked into this cycle over and over again. They were like the children of Israel wandering around the wilderness for 40 years going, I think we've been around this turn of time or two. I recognize those rocks over there. And people just, their, their lives, rather than being set free from the things that had enslaved them, they just continued around the same circle over and over and over again. And for me, um, I'm like, man, did they not hear, did not care? And they just continued down that path of self-destruction. And it was both frustrating and as well as heartbreaking. And it took me a long, long time to, before it dawned on me, the issue here is not the alcoholism. The issue really isn't just the depression or whatever it is they're battling with. The issue is over identity. How do I see myself? How do I view myself? And where did I get that image of myself? And how, did I cre how was that created within me? And how was that developed and established? Because when a person looks in the mirror, you have to ask yourself, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? How do you view yourself? What are the words that rattle around inside of your mind when you think about yourself? What are the things, we, we, I've asked you this question many times before, you know, the things like, you know, I'm worthless, I won't amount to anything, I'm unlovable, um, I'm an idiot, I, or sometimes maybe you, you're on the opposite side, you think I'm superior, and I'm so beautiful, and I'm so handsome, and maybe it's just the opposite, or maybe, maybe what rattles around in your head uh, is the, are labels that people put on you growing up. Like, uh, I've noticed that people who receive nicknames, either the person who gave you the nickname hates you or loves you. I don't know. It could be one or the other. But uh, so, for example, when I was in school, because my last name's Cooper, you know, kids are always looking for ways to take your name and turn it around and make a nickname out of it. And so I was called Chicken Coop. All right, so that's not like a real flattering label that you want to carry around with you. And labels are like this. 
Um, you know, when I get a, a prescription pill bottle, you know, my recycling won't accept them. So you have, to pe- you have to peel the label off, and some of them come off very easily. Some of them are super attached. Like, you know, they put it on there with epoxy. You can't get it off to save your life. Well, that's how labels are early on in life. We, we receive these labels from people. People say things about us, and they may stick to us, you know, eh, superficially, and you can kind of throw that off, but it might be a label that is like super glued on you, epoxied on you, like the label of you, you'll never amount to anything, and you're worthless, and you're a nobody, and you're, you're stupid, and you, you can't do that, and all those kinds of, of labels. And so labels, I have what I call sticky value. And so some of the labels that you receive from people are life-giving labels, Right? Like, you're so generous, you're so loving, you're so patient, you're so kind. But other labels that you receive growing up are labels that are life-taking. Like, uh, you're a wreck, <laughs> you're mean, you're selfish, you are cruel, you're prideful. So when you think about identity and how you see yourself, how you view yourself, what rolls around inside of your head, there are a lot of different ways that we have established our identities Things that people labeled us with, experiences that we've had in life, the things that uh, people that are, are very valuable in your relationship world have said to you, have done to you, have all been molded together in order to formulate your identity, and Satan understands that. So, of course, um, Satan has known since the beginning that if he's going to win the war against you, he's going to battle, first of all, and that front line is going to be over the issue of identity. And this is exactly what happens to the very first parents, Adam and Eve, is that Satan begins to relabel them. He gives them a new identity. In fact, he gets Adam and Eve to see God in a, with a different identity than what God has actually revealed himself to them. And so two important things you need to learn. Who is God? And who are you? And how do those two things intersect? And what in the world do they have to do with spiritual warfare? Well, once you know those two things, everything else can kind of sort themselves out. But without that understanding, life is not going to make any sense. And the demonic attacks against you are going to become very, very discouraging. And you may find yourself locked into that pattern in your life you know, for 40 years, you're just going around the same loop over and over again, and you are discouraged, and you're down on yourself, and, and Satan then takes that model, and he just heaps condemnation on you, and he begins saying things in your mind like, you are, a, you are worthless, and you're no good, and God can't love you, and all these other things that we deal with on a day-in, day-out basis. So, identity theft. Why is that battle so important, and to you, living out your God-given destiny. That's what we want to talk about today. So um, the world's fundamental problem, I believe, is we truly don't know who God is, and we truly don't know who we are in conjunction to God in that, that identity. So um, Genesis chapter 1, we're going we're gonna to start there in a, in a moment, but uh, I want to give you a couple of things about how our identity is wrongly um, constructed. Um, sometimes people, you, you try to build your identity, so there's this identity confusion inside of you. There are the labels, and you look in the mirror, you don't like what you're, you're seeing, and you don't like what's being said to you inside of your head. So you look for other ways to construct your identity, and here's probably the three most popular. These are not the only three, 
But the most popular in the first one is we try to then develop our identity. And by the way, this is kind of a subtle um, approach of the enemy. We try to build our identity around our accomplishments, around our accomplishments. And so when we believe the performance lie, our identity wrongly comes from what we have accomplished. For example, this starts very young. It might be that you were very athletic growing up, right? And so you got in school and and uh, you were athletic, and you, know, you played on a team, a sports team, and you got a letter and, uh, you know, for, for doing, being good in sports or, or, you know, at least participating in sports. And so that kind of begins to build your identity. It's like you get to stick it on the back of your jacket. Remember, you got, had the school jacket. You got the letter on there. And you love that if you have more than one letter, you can put four or five out there, and you're just kind of like strutting around like, look at me. I've accomplished so much. I am somebody. I am someone. And so you begin building and constructing your identity around what you have accomplished in life. Or maybe you got really good grades in, in class, and, and uh, you are, um, you've been acknowledged for that, and, you know, you're on the honor roll, and your parents, like, um, you know, when they're introducing kids to their family, this is our brainiac, this one's not so much, uh, so yeah, that's how you get introduced, and, and you're proud as a parent, and rightfully so, because your child is doing so well in school, and so you buy those stickers and put them on the back of your minivan that says, my kid is an honor student. Now, those of us who did not have honor students, we feel a little bad, so we just put the opposite sticker on the back of our minivans that says, my kid beat up your honor student, so that's the way we kind of we deal with accomplishment, but we all know that when we accomplish things, it makes us feel good about ourselves, right? It makes us feel good, and, and so if we're not careful, we can, we can build our identity on those accomplishments. You know, my kid can do a backhand spring. Your kid can't even do a cartwheel kind of thing, and, and um, your promotion is you feel good. You, you feel better. So people praise the accomplishments um, of your children. You feel good as a parent, but what if they criticize your kids because of the things they've done or said? Then they feel bad as a parent. So we have this accomplishment issue that we're all over the map with, and we're trying to build our identity on that. The problem is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, um, very, very weak place to be um, because you will wrongly receive self-worth from what you accomplish or what you do. Because what if I'm building my identity and my self-worth on what I can do, which often happens to professional athletes, and so they have all of their self-worth, all of their identity is built on their accomplishment. Well, what happens when they age out? And they're no longer a factor in that, that particular sport. Oftentimes they struggle in life. They turn to coping mechanisms because they feel like they're a nobody and they're worthless because their entire identity has been built around their ability to accomplish certain things. Here's the second one is it's built around what we have, what we have. It's the car you drive. It's the, you know, it, it, you know when I was in high school, <laughs> my very first vehicle was a Corvair van. Now, some of you don't even know what a Corvair is, horrible car, but make it even worse, make it into a van, right? So I had a Corvair van. The thing was spray painted like um, with primer, right? It didn't have a color. It was just gray. It's primer. Now, the thing about a Corvair van is that the engine of Corvairs were in the back of the car. So the engines in the Corvair is in the back of the van. So that meant in the wintertime in Ohio, uh, so it didn't have like... Um, 
a, a heater motor like a fan. So the, the way a Corvair van worked is that heat from the engine had to kind of gravitate to the front of the van before it came out and you got heated up, which meant when I got in my van and tried to drive to high school, I had to stop two to three times on the way there just to scrape my windows because there's no heat on the, on the windshield to keep it from fogging up and icing over and all those things. That was the vehicle I drove. Let's just say that uh, my identity... <laughs> Uh, was on an all-time low driving that vehicle. It's like, oh, please, God, don't let them see me. And uh, this is not a chick magnet uh, vehicle. I'm just telling you, it's just not. And so uh, I, later on, I graduated up into, when I was a senior in high school, I had a sweet 68 Camaro. 396, four on the floor. That thing was beautiful, powerful. And so it was a chick. What do you think I did for my identity? Well, it propped me up, right? So like, you know, now on Friday and Saturday nights, you're driving around the circle of Frisch's parking lot on 79 around. This is what kids did on Friday and Saturday nights back in my day. Around and around and around, you know, it's like, man, look at me. I would never drive my Corvair van around the circle, okay? It's just like you didn't do that. You didn't take it out unless you had to. But my 68 Camaro, man, I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm liking this. And so, but what happens if you build your identity around that and all of a sudden you don't have it anymore? You can build around the neighborhood you live in, the clothes that you wear, the vacations you go on, the degrees that you possess. People try to build their identity around a lot of things, but that is a very false foundation for life. The third one is what people think about you. And this is a big one. What people think about you. If you're a people pleaser, it's because you have tried to build your identity around what people think about you. Bad, bad idea. You know, when I was 16 years old, it was the first time I um, went to work for my dad. My dad um, is an engineer slash superintendent on commercial construction, and, and I, went, I was just a laborer, okay? I wasn't <laughs> a big title. I just labor, like whatever they told you to do. So when I went on the job that summer, I was, I was working for him. Um, I had in my mind, I said, you know what? I'm going to outwork everybody around me, not because um, I necessarily had that kind of a work ethic. It's just because I wanted people to think highly of me, right? So that was my whole work ethic for the, you know, and I did. I mean, I, I went at it and went at it and went at it. Because I was trying to build my identity around what people thought about me. And I discovered that the very same people who will praise you are also the very same people who will criticize you. So if you build your identity around what people think about you, you're going to be all over the map. Because it, it can change from one day to the other. And so what has been done to you and what can be done to you and your accomplishments, your performance, the accolades you try to receive from that... Is this how God sees us? In other words, does God build our identity on our accomplishments? Does he build our identity around what we have? Does he build our identity around what people think of us? Absolutely not, because he understands that is a false foundation upon which to build your identity. And if you are building it on those three false foundations, that foundation, it's only a matter of time before it crumbles beneath your feet and you land with a mighty fall. So what identity has God given to us? God creates us, and he creates an identity for us. And he, designed, he desires to define our identity in alignment with his view of us. This is so important. His view of us, not somebody else's view of you. Because you, you may have a horrible view of yourself, but that doesn't mean it's true. God wants you to align yourself around his view of you, his identity, 
So where do we find that? Well, we find it right here in Genesis chapter 1. Let's look in uh, verses, verse 21. It says that, So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing, which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird and according uh, to its kind. And God saw what? It was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and Fill the water of the seas and let the birds increase in the, on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Then go to verse 26 when it comes to us. It says, then God said, let us make man in whose image? In our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creatures that are moving Along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God says, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the earth. And at the end of that, it says, And God says, What? It was good. In fact, it was very good. So here's God's um, identity for us. We are image bearers, which means you are a mirror that reflects God. So, so God created us to reflect him back to the world around us. We are image bearers of God to each other. We are image bearers to the world around us, to the relationships. He created us to reflect his goodness. He created us to reflect his glory. So it doesn't matter what your vocation is. Whatever your vocation, whether you are a teacher or a carpenter or a plumber or an IT guru or whatever it might be, a mailman, a clerk, a dentist, um, the question is, what would Jesus look like if he were in that vocation? That's what it means to reflect back, to mirror God and the image of God and the glory of God to those around us. So it matters not what your vocation is. What would Jesus look like if he were a teacher? What would Jesus look like if he were a carpenter? What would Jesus look like? How would he relate to people? How would he interact with people if he were doing your vocation? That's what it means to be an image bearer. Imaging God involves three things. It involves thinking with our heads, feeling with our hearts, and doing something with our hands. Your head, your heart, and your hands. God has given you those three entities to reflect, to mirror back to the world around us what God is like. So we, we are to think God's thoughts and agree with the truth that he has revealed in Scripture. We are to feel with God's feelings such as, and, and such as hating injustice and hating oppression and loving people and Grieving sin's effects upon humanity and rejoicing in redemption. We're to join in God's work by using our hands, whether with Christians or non-Christians, in acts of compassion and generosity. And so when we reflect something of God with our heads, our hearts, and our hands, that means, um, and we do it out of love for others, then this is what God created us for. And that brings great joy within us it's helpful to others, and it is an act of worship to our Heavenly Father. This is the image that, that we've been created in, that we reflect God. 
and as image bearers, we, he speaks to us like we are receivers of his revelation. Just as God spoke with Adam and Eve in the garden, we're receivers of his revelation through the word of God and through the spirit of God, the, the voice of God as he moves us and he prompts us to different actions and, and categories. And so God starts, notice how he started this whole relationship in Genesis. He starts, he says, by blessing them. He starts with grace. He starts with love. He starts with all the positive attributes that we think about when we think about God himself. But he also created us as dependent human beings. Not independent of our creator, but dependent. This is so, so important because why? When Satan wants to mess with your identity, he's going to move your identity not not ratcheted into God. He's going to move your identity outside of God, outside of Jesus. Because he knows if he can get you outside of God, outside of Jesus, he's got you. He can mess with your head. He can mess with your emotions. And he can mess with your actions. So, foundation here laid. He says he created the male and female, two categories. A lot of people di- disagree with that in our day and time, right? Gender confusion is huge in our right. Those who are, um, are in the um, you know, counseling field, uh, I have a friend who's in the counseling field, and they were part of an organization that has over 70 counselors. They are over 500 cases behind because the, the caseload is so heavy, and the two main things that they're counseling about is addiction and gender confusion. And so what, did, what has Satan sought, sought to do? He sought to take our identity as male or female and to mess with our heads when it comes to being male or female. So now we're not sure what we are. And as a result of that, psychologically, it's very confusing and it's a demonic issue that causes people great Great um, emotional turmoil, mental illness. I mean, it, it goes right on down. There are those who say, well, no, that's, that's just the way God created me. No, it's not. I'm sorry. How do you know that? Well, uh, here's how I know. Are we going to have gender confusion in heaven? Was there gender confusion in the garden? So those are the two big bookends, the garden and heaven. If you don't have it in the garden and you ain't got it in heaven and it lodges somewhere in between, that's not of God. All right? That, that, is the, that is the culture of the kingdom of your enemy, Satan. And he's bringing great confusion into your life and um, identity issues so that he can keep you encapsulated in his kingdom, believing that God, some, for some reason, made you that way and you have no ability to overcome that identity. Now, I know that's not real popular in our day and time, and if this is going out live stream, I'll probably get some emails about that uh, very issue, but I'm just telling you, if you're going to come at me, you better come at me with the Word of God, because I don't find it in the garden, I don't find it in the kingdom, uh, you know, in heaven, therefore, Jesus says, here's what Jesus always, when he was asked questions like this, you know what he always did? He goes, here's God's original design, anything outside of God's original design is sin, sin always leads to brokenness, and brokenness always leads to coping mechanisms. If you want to get back to where God to God's original design, you come by way of the gospel, which is why I say the gospel applied is always the answer to any problem you face and any any problem that the world faces. If it's applied. 
And so this is our identity. We were created by God to be loved by God, spoken over by God, provided by God, bear the image and likeness of God, and to carry dominion and authority over his creation. Now remember, what God creates, Satan counterfeits. And so this is what happens in Genesis chapter 3. He counterfeits what God has created. So what did God do? Well, let's read this again in chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any wild of the animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, so here's, what's the first thing that he does? He, he twists God's word, God's word. Did God really say that? Now, um, is that what God said? You can eat of anything. Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree. Now, notice the wording. You must not eat from any tree. Is that what God told them? No, he said the opposite. You can eat of any tree except the one. So he put them in a garden of grace and gave them one law. What Satan comes along and says, no, he put you in the garden of law and gave you one grace. You see how he twists God's word? Big difference, right? Because this is what happens is, is that, let's say, for example, your child, you say to your child, um, hey, uh, as a parent, you say, hey, you can go into the kitchen and get a snack. You can eat anything you want, but don't drink the bleach that is underneath the sink. Now, is your child going to respond, Oh, mom, dad, you're so legalistic. Why can't I have that? Right? Of course, you're going to say something like, well, son, uh, listen, I can guarantee you that 100% of the kids who have drank the bleach underneath the sink, it did not turn out well for them. And this is what God is saying to Adam and Eve, right? You can eat of any tree but this one, and the reason why I don't want you to eat from this one is like drinking the bleach. It's not going to fare well for you. I don't want you to experience evil. I don't want you to experience anything outside of grace. But if you partake in this tree, you will experience evil. You will experience a lot of stuff outside of grace. It will not fare well for you. And it didn't, and it hasn't. God was simply trying to spare humanity of all the stuff that we deal with day in and day out because of the fallen world and our own fallen natures. And so God said, eat of any tree, only one is forbidden. God is gracious with very few laws. And so here's how Satan works. So he gets them thinking about this tree. Now he's going to ramp it up a little bit. He's going, to, he's going to appeal to them through discontentment. Always be leery when you're discontented. Because this can be, a, 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 this, this is, a, this is a, um, a weapon of the enemy that gets us a lot. And so how, how does he do this? Well, it goes on to say, that, well, the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat from the fruit trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. And notice what he says, you are not going to die. In fact, if you partake in this tree, your eyes are going to be opened. In fact, not only are your eyes going to be opened, but you will be like God. Now, weren't they already created in the image of God? Absolutely. They were already like God, as much as God-like they could be. They weren't gods. They were just like him, in his image. You will be like 
God. What's he trying to do? God creates an identity for them, and Satan comes along and causes discontent. In essence, he's saying, you could do better than that. You could do more than that. There's something that God's withholding from you that if you partook in it, I'm telling you, it's going to take you to a whole nother level, a whole nother stratosphere. You are going to be just like God, your creator. You, and so now, now Eve's kind of like, okay, well, all right, something's resonating here. Um, and so out of discontentment, there's potential, right? She, it's like, uh, you know, if you can do more, you can be more, you can have the ability to self-actualize all your potential if you'll just take, you know, just partake in this. And so Satan ultimately tells them that you'll be like God, and if you'll do something to, watch this, if you will do something to achieve an identity apart from God, you'll have everything you want, everything you desire, you'll be perfectly content. It's the same strategy Satan uses in our day and time. And he starts by attacking our identity. Because listen, the demonic lie and the first lie believed is believed by many. It's all based on demonic deception. And it always leads you to rooting your identity in idolatry. This is why God talks so much about idolatry. Because you're rooting your identity in something apart from God hoping that if I root my identity in this, then I will be content in life. I will be somebody. I will be important. I will be the shining star. I will be the one who stands out. I will be the one who has everything you could ever want. This is Satan's ploy. This is the bait with which he baits the trap. So I just took the word idolatry and just kind of put it in an acrostic. I'm just going to hit him real quickly because I really want to get to the crux of the matter. And so here's one is that I is for items. What we own is our public way sometimes of projecting a, a desired image. You know, consumerism is kind of our, essentially the American religion in our day and town. We are always, we are bombarded by advertisements all day long to buy things that we don't need, to impress people we don't like with money we don't have. And so consumerism is so all-encompassing is that now people think nothing about being thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in debt, credit card debt, in order to try and fulfill this, this longing, this lusting of consumerism. And so everywhere you go, you're constantly being told, listen, you're never going to be content until you have this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you got that, but I'm going to tell you, you're not going to. This is the ploy of all advertisement is to get you discontented with what you have and become more contented with what they're selling. And then you buy that, you know, set that point and you, you buy it. And then you find out, well, you know, it was a little content. I was kind of content for a little while, but then it kind of lost its luster. Now, now I'm going to move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing because I'm trying to build my identity around these things that I possess. This is what sociologists call competitive consumption, which forces the average family to work harder, spend less time with those they love, and live more miserably because they're enslaved to debt and an ongoing effort to prop up some false sense of identity and personal value. Which then leads to what? Right? If I'm not spending as much time with my family because I'm trying to prop up this consumer uh, consumption debt, 
then now all of a sudden I feel guilty as a parent. I, I feel like I'm letting my, my family down. And then what happens when parents get home? They're like, oh, we're exhausted from working. Our, our kids, uh, you know, have, have, are in the house, but I don't want a parent. And I, so I just let them do whatever they want because I just really, I don't want to fight it. I just don't want to fight it and just, uh, okay, we'll just let them run, run wild. Which makes you feel even more guilty and bad about yourself. D is for duties. Life is full of responsibilities and duties. Uh, school, job requirements, workforce, you know, the, you name it. It goes on and on. Marriage, you know, parenting, grandparenting, all those things. You will always be searching for something to excel in uh, if you're not careful to, in order to outperform others and to demonstrate your superiority or to make yourself feel good about yourself. You know, people, things like your... Your health will no longer matter to you, and instead you, you've placed everything at the altar of success, the God of achievement. And so if, in your, in your life, if you're not careful in your heart, you like, like winning is everything. And so I'm so consumed with this is that over time, I just lose my compassion. In other words, we can get so wrapped up in our duties and so wrapped up in our responsibilities that if something comes along where I'm able to, 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 to uh, mirror back the image of God with my head and my heart and my hands and, and with compassion to minister to this person, it's like, I don't have time for that. I ain't got, I ain't got, I can add one more thing to my schedule. I don't have time for that. I don't have money for that. And so now all of a sudden we lose our compassion for the very people that we are supposed to be reflecting God back to. O is for others. God made us for friendships and community. And but things you know, like there's a lot of good things we can do. Um, but if our identification is, if we're not careful, um, we can so identify with our tribe, and your tribe can be like your family, your city, your workplace, um, your sports team. It can be a nationality, a race, a gender. It can be a political party. It can be a hobby. It can be a sexual orientation. Whatever it is, if you idolize your tribe, here's what happens. When you idolize your tribe, you demonize everybody else's. This is why you hear people saying, well, if you're a dem Democrat, you've got to be an idiot. Democrats are over here. If you're a Republican, you've got to be even more of an idiot. And now we're back and forth with each other and and church members even are haggling back and forth over political parties, and I can't be around you, and I can't associate with you because you're not a part of my tribe, and I, you're not a part of my tribe. And so this has caused great division even in churches. And Satan just sits back and laughs, says, <laughs> I got you guys. See, we can do this with nations, cities, countries. Education, you know, there's the argument, private school, public school, homeschooling. People like public schools, well, you homeschoolers, you shouldn't be homeschooling. Homeschoolers like you, you shouldn't send your kids. And, and there's bowing back and forth, even in the educational system, which it explains why we can become so demanding and so smothering and so needy and, and, and we're just inflated with praise and, and deflated by criticism and yeah, it's just it's bad news. L is for longings, right? We all have longings in our hearts, 
But here's the problem is that oftentimes when we build our identity or we, uh, idolatry and longings comes in our hearts, it's always we never can be satisfied with the present. We're always looking to the future, and we're never going to be satisfied. It's the when-then syndrome. When I get this, then I'll be satisfied. When I get this, then I'll be content. You know, when I get the degree, when I get the home, when I get the marriage, when I get the kids, when I get the dog, when I get when, when, when. And you're always living in the future, and you're bypassing what's in the present. And yet Jesus told us the exact opposite. He said, stop worrying about the future. Stop living out there. Let's live for the present. You know, I, I remember when, I, when our kids were like, oh, I can't wait till our kids get older and they take care of themselves and I don't have to get them a bath and I don't have to change diapers. Then they get older and it's like, oh, you know, I can't wait till they get in high school. And they get high, Oh, I can't wait till they leave the house. And they left the house. Now my house is empty and it's quiet and I don't like it. And it's, oh, I wish they'd come back. And one of them came back and it's like, oh, my God, what did I, what did I ask for? I don't understand. <laughs> Never satisfied. S is for sufferings. We suffer physically, emotionally, financially, mentally, relationally, a lot of different ways. And it, if you're not careful, it can become your identity. Now, admittedly, I have a very hard time saying to a cancer patient, a divorcee, or a rape victim, you should not build your identity around your pain, but they do oftentimes. You know, I've been to AA meetings, and people start off by saying what? I am an alcoholic. Hi, my name's Greg. I'm an alcoholic. So what am I saying? My identity is I'm an alcoholic. I'll always be an alcoholic, and I can't change that. Nothing can make it different. And so now I, I just I, I keep myself tied to alcoholism. It's not that what God has, has set up for us. God told us that he has made us in his likeness and his image, and God says, I, I made you like me. Satan says, no, he didn't. You need to separate yourself and create your own identity separate from him and show God who you really are. And so no identity is received from God. Identity is, is not achieved by you. I, I, my identity is not something I, I work for and achieve. It's something that God gives me. So here's the last one, and this is the really important part. Jesus restores your identity in what? In order for you to live out your God-given destiny. Jesus gives you your identity. This is what God says about you. If you just look at the book of Ephesians alone about what God says, he says you're in Christ and you are a new creation and that you are a saint and that you are blessed and that you are sealed and that you are affirmed. I mean, you just go down the list all through the book of Ephesians and God says, this is your identity in Christ. This is your identity in Christ. This is your identity in Christ. Now, build your life on that identity so that you do not confuse your identity with your role. Like, see, if I build my identity as a parent, as a father, says my, my identity is built around my kids, well, what happens after your kids leave home? Now I've lost my identity, and I feel worthless, and I feel ho hopeless, and I feel like I have no meaning or purpose any longer in life. No, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm all these things in Jesus who happens to be a father. So when my kids leave home, I don't lose my identity. My identity is secure in Christ. This is just my role has changed, right? So my role as a father is not the same with my children now that they are adults as it was when they were small. And I got to boss them around. They actually listened. Then they got became teenagers and stopped listening. Now they're adults, and sometimes they listen. That's not my role to boss them around. So here, here's what Jesus did. 
And I'm just going to reference the passage because you're all familiar with the temptation. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, says that Jesus was taken into the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and at the end of that temptation, he left empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, what happened in chapter 3? In chapter 3, Jesus was baptized, and at his baptism, the Bible says that all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit, like the form of a dove, descended upon him, and that the voice of the Father spoke, and what did he say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, at that point and juncture in Jesus' life, what had he done? Nothing. He's not healed anybody. He's not preached a sermon. He has not fed 5,000. He has not delivered anybody from demonic presence. He hasn't done any of those things. But God says in his identity, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What's the first thing that Satan did when he tempted him? If you are the son of God. He attacks his identity. The same thing here in the book of Genesis in chapter 3 is that Satan attacks the identity of Adam and Eve themselves. And so, uh, it, it, I mean, what is it? He says, if you're the son of, turn stone into bread. Is it a sin to turn stone into bread? Well, absolutely not. But Jesus says, look, um, Sometimes the issue is not what you are doing, but who you're doing it with. See, it's good to go on a date with your spouse, but not with somebody else's spouse. And so Satan shows up and attacks the identity of Jesus. And so what did Jesus do? And this is the kind of the fill in the blanks on your, your outline, is that Jesus' identity is from whom? From the Father. Your identity comes from whom? From the Father. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Is that pleasure over you based upon what you do or do not do? Absolutely not. Is God going to change his mind about your identity because you may not live up to some expectation or that you may have of yourself or somebody else has over you? Absolutely not. God set his identity over you. Number two, live from your God-given identity, not from some self-created identity apart from the Father. And the reason why Jesus could say no to temptation is because Jesus knew who the Father was and he knew who he was. And he knew that God had a destiny for him, and he was not going to deviate from that destiny. He was not about to build an identity apart from the one that the Heavenly Father already issued him. And here's the third aspect of this, is that the war is not between yourself and the demonic, but between the demonic and the Word of God. Every single time, how did Jesus respond? It is written. It is written. It is written. So let me just close with this. Remember, God and Satan is seeking to define you. God and Satan. So how's God defined you? What's God's identity over you? You are appreciated. You're saved. You're reconciled. You're gifted. You're all these things. And so let me just take one word and, and flesh this out as an example in closing. Let's take the word saint. God says, you are a saint. To every book that Paul wrote to a church, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Corinth. Okay, let's just take the church at Corinth. It was the most idolatrous, self-centered, 
self-consumed church in all the New Testament. And yet Paul addressed them as what? To the saints of God. Who gave them that label? Who gave them that identity? God did. And so being a saint simply means being set apart by God, which requires only one single step, and that is being in Christ by faith through a relationship with him and believing in his death, burial, and resurrection and putting your hope, faith, and trust in Christ alone. How much did that cost you? Nothing. What did it cost Jesus? Everything. And as a result of that relationship, God says you are now in Christ he is in you, and so every label that God has placed upon you is a part of your identity that ought to be sticky like epoxy, you know, epoxy glue, right? Two, two, you take two uh, elements and mix them together, and man, when it's stuck, it is stuck. God says, I want that lodged in your mind. I want that lodged in your heart. I want that lodged in the inner core of your being so that when your enemy comes against you, you rely upon what I said about you, not what he said about you. And so when he comes and attacks your identity, you say, but it is written, this is what God says. So what, is, what does Satan do? All right, he's going to challenge your sainthood because you know, you know, you know, you know that you don't always live like a saint, do you? See, we are saints who sin. So what happens when you sin? Do you know that, God, that Satan speaks to you? Is that news to you? <laughs> so when you sin, what does Satan do? He speaks to you through condemnation. Well, you're a horrible person. You know, if you're really a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't do that. You know, if, if man, if people find out, they're going to they're gonna think so different about you than you've ever, they've ever thought about you. Remember, what does God do? When I sin, God brings what? Conviction through his Holy Spirit. And the, re, the purpose of conviction is to bring me to repentance of my sin and reliance upon Jesus' Shed blood that has paid for all of my sins, past, present, and future. And so, God, I'm living in what? In the land of grace rather than the land of legalism, which is where condemnation happens. In the land of grace, I say, thank you, Father. I know that I'm not worthy of your forgiveness. I know that I'm not worthy to be called a saint. But I thank you that my worthiness does not come by my actions. My worthiness comes by your faithfulness. My worthiness comes by the cross and the blood of Jesus being applied to my life. And therefore, I thank you that you've made me a saint of God. And nothing can change that label over my life. That is my identity. As opposed to, you're over here, you've sin, and you've promised God three or four times you're never going to do that again, and it just keeps happening, and Satan comes, and he begins speaking to you words of condemnation. You're a worthless person. You're a piece of trash, and, and so what condemnation is, condemnation is just broad in general. You can't do anything about it. Well, what am I going to do about the fact that I'm a worthless person? What am I going to do about the fact that I'm, you know, a, a step above slime? I mean, I can't do anything about that, and so now I just feel bad about myself. And that becomes my identity. So when I look in the mirror, that's all I see. I'm worthless. I'm a nobody. I can't be loved. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. And the list just goes on and on and on. And here's the way you know that Satan is interjecting those thoughts into your mind. I don't know how many of you play poker, but when you're playing poker, you're always looking for the tell. 
And the tell is that the person sitting across from you at the table is that people give themselves away when they're playing poker. Like if they get a really good hand, it might be a raised eyebrow. It might be a, the corner of their mouth goes up. You're always looking for the tell. These are signs on the face of a person. This is why when you watch professionals play poker, most of them got sunglasses on because they want to eliminate the tells that would say, oh, I got a really good hand, or oh, this is a really uh, lousy hand, but I'm going to try to bluff my way through this. Here's Satan's tell. He always speaks to you in the second person. It's never, I'm an idiot, I'm stupid, I'm worthless, worthless. It's always, you're an idiot. You're stupid. You're see, that's the way he spoke to Jesus. That's the way he spoke to Adam and Eve. You, 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 you. That's his tell. And whenever it comes from the demonic realm, you do not have to accept it. Things like you are worthless, you are a failure, you are hopeless, you are disgusting, you're not a real Christian. God is, you know, you God ought to be sick of you. You you are an embarrassment. And so that is the tell of your enemy. And therefore, this is where you stand up and you take God's word and say, I'm standing on my identity in Jesus. I'm confessing my sin before my heavenly Father, knowing that I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and this is who I am in Christ, and I will move forward from here. Rather than living your life in self-condemnation and looking in the mirror and thinking that you are a nobody, but you don't want anyone in the Christian world to know you're a nobody, so we wear a mask, and we dress ourselves up, and we make ourselves appear to be what we are not living out. And then what Satan does with that, he just heaps more guilt, more self-condemnation all over you. You want to live free? Stop rooting your identity in anything other than Jesus and what he says about you and what he has secured for you. His victory has become yours. Let's bow our heads together. So, Father, we thank you, thank you, thank you um, for your words of encouragement to us through, through the word of God. You have created us to be loved, to be valued. You've created us as, as priceless um, instruments in your eyes. You've created us in your image. And so we ask your forgiveness, Father, for the times that we have knowingly or unknowingly accumulated labels that do not align with your view of us. Not only do they not align, but they also cover up who you created us to be. And so, Father, this morning we give you permission to remove every single ungodly label that Satan has placed upon us, that others have placed upon us, or we've placed upon ourselves, and to restore the identity that you have created for us. We declare that you have placed your DNA within us. We declare that we have, ref that we have the ability to reflect the glory of you back to the world around us, that we can mirror you through our head and our hearts and our hands. So we declare that that what you have said about us, the identity you've given to us, that we, we will allow that to stick to us. 
We declare that we no longer wear garments of a slave, but we wear garments of children of the kingdom of God, and therefore we wear the garments of freedom. We declare, Father, today that we are deeply, deeply loved saints of yours. And so we claim and hold on to the word of God that says now, because we are saints of God, therefore there is now no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And every time Satan shows his tell, you, 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 Father, we, we stand against it in the word of God with truth against the evil one's lies. And we declare and we receive and we accept and we adorn ourselves in the wardrobe that you have provided for us through your son, Jesus Christ. For those who will know the truth, the truth will set them free. And for those who are free, they are free indeed. Now I pray, O oh God, that you will set your saints free from self-condemnation. In Jesus' name.